You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah? Yeah, I think we're both just falling apart. You're fucking dying. Jeez. Definitely pinched a nerve in my back. I think that's where we're sitting. Well, that's why I got you the icy hot that I got. Yeah, it works. It's got lithium it's in it or whatever. <laughs> lithium. <laughs> it's got lidocaine in it. It's not have lithium in it. Energizer. Lithium batteries. That's the joke I'm open to win. Well, lithium is a medication you can take, but there's not <laughs> lithium in the medicine I gave you. There's still lithium in batteries, then. What's in the batteries? If you there's lithium in batteries as oh, well. Oh, okay. <laughs> Lithium's also a medication you can take. Uh, I think it's for, like, way more severe stuff, though. I think it's for, like, uh, like very severe mental disorders is yeah. usually what they use it for. Yeah. It's like one of those catatonic like sedative, yeah, sedatives. Not one you want to mess around with. Yeah. So, if you hear pain in my voice, it's because I'm in pain. <laughs> Welcome to the Nightmare Box. Presenting mistakes were made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across in the beautiful, the effervescent, the badass bitch bringing me lidocaine, Kristen Bloom. <laughs> Are you sure you're gonna make it? Yeah. You gonna survive a full hour? I mean, I will if you help me here. All right. <laughs> you look pretty miserable. I had I just sat down. I'm oh. still got shooting pains going through my leg. <laughs> yeah. well, we could have paused for a minute first if you wanted. Oh, it's okay. I'm here. Oh, what are we here for, Brett? We're here for mistakes were made. I just did that. Part. <laughs> did you introduce the show? Yeah, yeah I, I introduced just, the oh. show. I introduced you. I know you introduced me. <laughs> Said, Welcome to the Nightmare Box. Presenting oh, mistakes were made. Yeah. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across in the beautiful, yeah. the effervescent, the one who gives me... Lighty Kane, Kristen Bloom. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to start this. I, okay. I just got back from the gym. I'm, like, burned out myself. Okay. So, uh, last night we rewatched Loving Vincent. I guess we'll just dive into it. We were going to do that as um, upcoming Tuesday's film. Um, but then realized that it's a very niche, like, artsy type film. So, if you haven't hunted really it down. Really good movie. It's fucking incredible. I think it was like maybe 12 bucks or something on Amazon. It was super yeah, cheap. I would have paid like 30 for it. It's fucking incredible. <coughs> but, you haven't seen it. You should see it. Yeah, you should definitely get out there. So I've got some facts on it. And then uh, Kristen's got a few topics that she would like to talk about as well. Uh, so yeah, we rewatched Loving Vincent. I wish I'd written down the year. I think it was like 2017 or something like that that this came out. Something like that, yeah. Um, and it's fully painted. Um, I learned today that it was painted, they painted 65,000 frames in oil paints, and this is a direct quote from the website. It says, we painted the first frame as a full painting on canvas board and then painted over that painting for each frame until the last frame of the shot. We are then left with an oil painting on canvas board of the last frame. So for every like scene that you're seeing, they're using one painting and they're painting over the top of it. That's interesting. To do the whole shot. And there are 853 shots. <laughs> so you wind up with 853 completed paintings, if it will, of layered oil for each one of the scenes um, on top of the 90 design paintings that they did trying to hammer out how they were going to make this thing. All the paintings were done on canvases that were... Or all the paintings are 67 centimeters by 49 centimeters for our American audiences. It's 26 and a half inches by 19 and a third inches. Um, it took them four years to develop the technique. And with a team of over 100 painters, I think the final number was 125 and two filmmakers. It took them two years to complete this film. 
That makes sense, I guess, if you think about it, though, because with a, a stop motion, because it's literally just frame by frame mm-hmm. by frame, it's really important to make sure that your um, camera doesn't move. That way, whenever you're cutting these shots together, it looks like a seamless motion that's yeah. happening. So mm-hmm. you don't want the scene jumping around on you while you're like cutting yeah. between takes. So I guess that makes sense to just paint each frame on top of the existing frame because Mm. the only thing really moving are like the people and stuff so you want the buildings Mm -hmm. to look like they're still in the same spot that they were in the last frame so it's interesting yeah well i think it gives this really beautiful texture to the film which is my favorite part of you know watching loving vincent is that the paint splotches in the background are almost vibrating yeah it looks like the light yeah is like constantly kind of shifting Mm -hmm. almost so that's a Neat to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think about it on second viewing? Because first viewing, I feel like I was far too high and I was just dazzled by the goddamn paintings. That's like the third or fourth time we've watched well, it. Well, one time I was completely <laughs> blitzed. <laughs> no, it's a... I think I have mixed feelings about it because I feel like the story isn't like... So sol- I mean, the story is mm-hmm. definitely interesting, but I don't feel like the story is so solid that you can't get sidetracked from the story. There are yeah. like some scenes in the movie where the scenery is so pretty or whatever's happening is so pretty that sometimes I tune out with the actors mm-hmm. even saying it all. I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. And then I'm like, wait, what did he say? That's the problem. This is the third time we've watched it and we, neither one of us can remember the ending. Cause well, by I fell asleep <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> It's like you're diving into uh, sketches in black and white versus the oil paintings mm-hmm. and like the visual tells the narrative better than whatever's actually happening in the voiceover. And some of it's so subtle, the way they introduce it, that um, because there's music and stuff Mm -hmm. playing too, and sometimes whatever gets said is so subtle compared to the music and all the other stuff happening and how vibrant the paintings are that you kind of miss it entirely. Like, I don't think I realized until this go-around... That I knew his dad was a postmaster because they bring yeah. that up like multiple times, like his dad delivered the letters. But I don't think I realized that the postmaster that sits in front of the bar with him at the beginning of the movie is his dad. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't catch that. I don't think any other time. Yeah, I don't think I caught it this time. You had to point it out to me. <laughs> yeah, because he, he just says so subtly, like, where's my son? And like mm-hmm. somebody's like, oh, he's in the bar. And like, I just assumed it was a friend or something every other time. Like, I didn't yeah. know that was his actual dad, so... Yeah, like, that's my only, like, kind of meh about the movie is, like, it's so pretty. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the story gets lost. Like, it's yeah. definitely a movie you have to watch a couple of times, I think. Yeah, and I read a couple of one-star reviews. Believe it or not, they do exist for this movie. And those were the main things. Were people that weren't impressed at all by the visual aspects of it. And they were just bitching about the story. They were like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. I had to turn it off after 30 minutes. Oh, that's absurd. And I was like, that, that's crazy. That's madness that you would do that. Good. The other one star uh, reviews were like, well, they've basically taken a conspiracy theory about the death of Van Gogh and used it as fact. Like it wasn't presented as a theory at all. Like it was yeah. presented as this is what the people at the time thought happened, that he was shot in the field as opposed to shooting himself in the field. Yeah. And like I I, I fell asleep last night when we were watching it, so mm-hmm. I don't really remember exactly the ending, but I feel like I remember the ending being kind of ambiguous as to whether or not it was true, but it... For never really having heard that before this movie, it seems mm. like such a weird, like, 
hinge point to be basically what the whole movie's about. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole movie is basically about whether Vincent was killed or killed himself. Yeah. Um, and I'd never even heard that before until this movie. So yeah, there's a couple of different theories as to who did it and why it happened, and you know, was it him or all that fun shit. I found out the gun that he shot himself with sold for like a hundred and some odd, you know, fucking thousand dollars, and I was like, that seems morbid. a little low. It's too. <laughs> yep, sold at auction, got triple what they thought it was gonna get. Is it? Do you know though? Is it kind of more universally accepted that he just shot himself? Yeah, that's the ongoing theory that in one of his states of mania or depression, he pulled the trigger on himself in the field and tried to die in the field, but shot himself for. Strange reasons, yeah, in the stomach. So he fucking slowly bled out in the hotel room. I I would be curious, which I mean, that would have been a long time ago, so there's probably not really any forensics, but if there were forensics, like, to delve into, like, the actual forensics of that, because they present in the movie at one point that another doctor said the angle was too low, that he couldn't possibly have shot himself, and that... The impact of the bullet, the gun couldn't have been close enough for him to be holding it, so I would be mm-hmm. interested to see. Because there were no burns on his clothes? Yeah, like yeah. I would be interested to see if there's like real evidence to support the science of that, that it is questionable that he shot himself. Well, I mean, it is a theory. I know that there's several of them out there about what happened to Van Gogh, because he was basically, you know, went off, did his normal thing, I'm going to go paint in the fucking field, and then stumbled back into town with a gut wound it's like the death of edgar Allan poe where it's like he comes in he's like stumble drunk and he's not wearing his own clothes and like fucking i think he od'd like like on a park bench or something right i think he walked into a bar but it might have been a park bench but yeah the over the prevailing theory on that wasn't just that he you know od'd one night the conspiracy angle is they used to um kidnap you beat you up and then send you to the voting polls to vote in a particular way mm-hmm. and they think that he might have gotten his ass kicked by one of those gangs and then yeah. killed that way i feel like i remember the movie wasn't about poe i don't think but poe was a maybe it was about poe that'd be weird for poe to be a character in the movie and the movie not to be about th- are you talking about the raven the yeah the edward yeah. norton one mm-hmm. where like he's found on a park bench dead and like he had like internal injuries so yeah there was like this like and it's a fictional movie it's not like a yeah. documentary um but yeah there was like a whole thing where they were like saying his death was suspicious and yeah like did he overdose and just Mm -hmm. freeze to death and die on the park bench or like why did he have all the internal bruising did somebody like beat him to death and leave him there to die but i'm pretty sure it was a park bench that he was Mm -hmm. on no it's a fun parallel you know between van gogh a master and poe a master both died penniless (laughs) it may like i will say maybe to its credit one thing i'm loving vincent does though because like you're kind of very much with the main character in the yellow coat the whole time. And I don't know if we mm-hmm. ever even learn his name. I don't know it's if like they... It's like Bagal or something like oh, that, do they I believe. Um, but the character in the yellow coat is mm-hmm. kind of the character we're following the whole movie. And it's very much like Clue, like he's investigating, yeah. like who done it, you know? And then like when you're done with the movie, it kind of makes you be like, hey, I want to go to that town and talk to those people. Was he really bullied? Like, yeah, I want to see what was actually Did he really stay there? On. Yeah, no, he was definitely bullied and harassed and people fucking either loved him or hated him because he was a, a stumble bum painter, you know? <laughs> but I don't know. I love the story of Van Gogh, but regardless. It puts you in that mindset, I feel like, because the character initially at the very beginning before he gets to town is like... 
oh, you know, he was a no account yeah. that took advantage of everyone. And then he gets to town and, like, starts learning more about his life. And he's like, who did this to yeah. him? He shows up and he's like, I don't see the point in delivering a dead man's letter or whatever it was. Because mm-hmm. he's there to get the letter to his brother. Right? That's the whole point. Vincent's And then brother, finds yeah. out that his brother had passed away shortly after Vincent had. And so he has to go to the lady who's like... You know, no, he definitely shot himself. (laughs) That's like the the big bow at the end of the film. I forgot how long it was. In my head, it was like 45 minutes, but it's like an hour 30. Yeah, I thought it was shorter, too. Yeah. Um, I get... (laughs) I'm having a conversation with you. Don't laugh at me for my responses. Um... I guess, what do you think of the movie? Because, like, I feel like my only complaint would be from a writing standpoint... It doesn't maybe flow as well mm-hmm. as I would like for how beautiful the transitions and the paintings and stuff are. Like, it's very, yeah. very visual. Well, it was done by very visual people. Um, I can't remember the writer's name. It might have even been the director. But the director wanted to make the film because she started off painting, got into film, and then wanted to kind of capture the essence of paint in film. And this was what birthed out of that just that I can't make a Van Gogh film without using his paintings and then that just spiraled into let's just paint the whole fucking movie this was like her third or fourth animated film um and I would imagine a person connected to that project under that director is also very visually motivated and then you've got a team of 125 visually motivated people so I'm curious as to the level of the screenwriter that was actually behind this or was it more about the beauty of the the stop motion painting it does make me curious what came first did they have an idea for a story or did they just pull all of his paintings and go how can we turn this into a story well i think that's what that four-year developmental period was about was let's get all of his landscape pictures all of his self-portraits let's try to tell a narrative underneath this that aligns while using the characters he painted it's and i think it's supposed to align with his letters to his brother so you get as much vincent in it as you can i do to the painter's credit think it's really cool that there are characters in the movie that i'm assuming were never paintings that vincent painted at all so when you see the character they created Mm -hmm. for that role it literally looks exactly like the actor who's voicing the role and apparently they did those in green screens or sets that looked like the initial thing and then the painters just painted those people i mean like the one chick from peaky blinders that plays the aunt or whatever Mm -hmm. um it looks exactly like her Like, yeah, as soon as she's, she's on screen, and she's got such a distinct voice, but as soon as you see her on screen, it's like, oh, it's that chick! It's the chick from Peaky! <laughs> <laughs> in paint form! I'm envious of uh, being able to do something to that level. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about that, the painters who painted frame by frame on top of the initial painting that was inspired by Vincent's painting, mm-hmm. like had to have practiced the technique of recreating Vincent's style yeah. of painting for, like, so long. And, like... They definitely had to be, like, understudies, like, paint students who, who practiced with that particular heavy glob. I don't know what the technical term is, but the Vincent style of those big brush strokes. And... Yeah. And is it surrealism? What type of painting is that? It is a specific type of painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm years removed from any art class. <laughs> But I do have a Van Gogh on my Van wall. Gogh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I kind of envy that, like, being able... Because if you really honestly just kind of look at the painting, like, they do look like very chaotic, clunky brush mm-hmm. strokes. 
but then to like step back and see it as very clearly this like cohesive image like you can clearly see buildings and clearly see people even if the details aren't like incredibly sharp a window might just be four lines in a box yeah and like whenever you see the people from a distance they're almost just the shading of whatever their shirt is and their Mm -hmm. pants you know it's not really like any details to them but like even in those like chaotic clunky strokes you can clearly see like the sky and the city yeah. and the water and like all this stuff. And you almost need to see it from a distance. Like if you're standing five feet in front of a Van Gogh, <laughs> you're five feet in front of it. You're not going to see like all of the detail. You're too close to the situation. But if you get like 20 feet away from it, like you, it doesn't matter that the characters in the background don't have eyes. You know, their, their face is just one square peach blob. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Do they? Do you think they call it "go" in Europe? I don't know, but it makes me laugh. I know they don't call it "go" because that's not what they Van called Go. it in the film. I think Van Gogh's better. Vincent Van Gogh is one of the most beautiful names <laughs> in the movie. They keep calling him Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Sounds like you're coughing. It. There was one where it sounded <laughs> <Those> goddamn Frenchman. <laughs> there was one where it sounded slightly different. I remember you were making fun of it. It was like it sounded like it had a T at the end. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. <laughs> mm. Fantastic movie, though. We still have not watched the special features. No, we need to. We definitely need to. There's apparently like a two-hour documentary about the making of that hour and 30-minute film. So we need to watch that. track that down. Yeah. It's called Chasing the Dream or Living the Dream, but it's the same title. Loving Vincent, Chasing the Dream or Living the Dream, something along those lines. Amazon that later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We got a movie longer than the movie about the movie. (laughs) It's probably really interesting, though. Yeah. When you learn about... Cause that's, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Like, the idea of doing a true stop motion film seems daunting. Like doing it in painting form. Mm-hmm. Like I, because like whenever we watched, um, it's like all one twenty five of the painters need to be like on the same level. You know. <laughs> but like whenever we watched, they, I don't know if they've added anything new to it, but they added a, the Christmas movies that made us. Mm-hmm. Cause Brett and I keep watching the whatever that made us. It's the video games, the, the toys. Yeah, like they they have like a bunch of different versions of it, but they added a Christmas movies that made us that only had two episodes on it, and I really hope they add more to they, it. They're that's not bullshit. going to. I looked it up. Oh, really? That's yeah, such it's bullshit. just Elf and Nightmare, Nightmare Before, Before Christmas. Christmas. That's such bullshit. Yeah, no Netflix. The move is Brian, add one alone, every day. Or, like. <laughs> Why? That makes no sense. Exactly. But anyway. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah. Like, that's a classic. Um, Frosted Snowman. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we watched the... The whole ni- film. We watched the Nightmare Snowman. Before Christmas episode. <laughs> and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was the first feature-length stop-motion film. And even with that, they uh, had, like, different heads of Jack. They could just mm-hmm. change out. So it's not like you're having to, like, literally redraw or repaint frame by frame. It's like, pop that head off, put this head on. <laughs> reposition his arms and like that seems super tedious because it's like for every frame you're like let's move him just a little bit so he looks like he's walking and a little bit more and Mm -hmm. like to literally have to frame by frame repaint the painting like i cannot imagine (laughs) like you'd get one scene done in 24 hours yeah and you have to wait on the paint to dry it's like you can't (sighs) just use the immediately (laughs) you're like i need to move the arm so i need to 
paint over part of the arm, paint in the arm as it's going down, you know, and then we have to wait for it to dry and make sure it's the same color. Oh, fuck, it's half a fucking shade off of what we need for the shot. Okay, repaint the fucking foreground. Yeah, <laughs> I would have I definitely digitally painted it so you could move it digitally yeah. and not, not done real paint. That would be a nightmare. The pictures were pretty cool that they had up on the website. It's lovingvincent.com, uh, where I got pulled the quote from earlier. Um, but the pictures on the website are pretty cool because it, it looks almost like they got like a fucking airplane hanger filled with painters with these big, you know, um, desks that are like at a 45 degree angle and the paintings there. And they've each got a little chair and then they've each got a picture on a television in front of them. It's like everybody has their own TV. Everybody has their own station and they're all painting something like different. That's crazy. Yeah, so it looks like a massive art class. I wonder how much money they spent making that movie. Surprisingly, like less than $5 million. And they made something like 52 or 54 off of it, if I'm hmm. remembering my numbers correctly. But yeah, I was like, how do you even hire 125 professional painters for less than money? I feel like there was shockingly, like I knew about the movie, I'd heard of it, but I feel like there was shockingly little like PR to like promote it. It was all on social media, and it was only in theater for, like, a day in select theaters. Yeah. Like, I remember, I think, seeing a YouTube video about it, and that's mm-hmm. the first time I had ever heard of it. But, like, I don't... I feel like if I brought it up to other people I know, they'd be like, what? Yeah. Like, I don't feel like they They might very... vaguely remember, like, some sort of BuzzFeed article. And then... <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't feel like they very aggressively promoted it, which seems strange to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I guess it's... It is kind of a target audience. Yeah. You're action flick goers aren't going to watch this movie probably but i'm curious if it did a lot better in europe like if that's where they focused it because when i looked at the website you can tell it hasn't been touched since 2017 um so it still says it will be playing on like november the 2nd you know 2017 (laughs) or whatever and none of it's been updated since the film came out it's just their promotional website um but when i clicked on all of america there were no viewings listed like so you could see it in england and you could see it in france and you could see it you know in amsterdam and all these other places yeah they didn't even try in america to promote your idiots aren't going to appreciate this like you're not going to get it you're going to think it's boring (laughs) but i mean like even like i said my my only complaint would be maybe the story is not as strong as the visuals but even the story is like interesting enough Mm -hmm. that it's a good watch yeah like i I don't ever find myself bored watching it. No, never. Even, like, if I'm falling out of the story, the visual itself is just the holy mother of God. Like, I can't look away from it. And I like, too, I would be curious to know how they did that, how the paintings, like, melt into each other when you're transitioning Mm -hmm. scenes. So was that a digital effect they did, I wonder? Or did they literally paint two paintings mixing together until you get... That would be nuts. Yeah, because, I mean, like... When you transition into the black and white stuff, it's almost like the colors melting out of it as you're going into mm-hmm. the next scene. So I, I do wonder if that was a digital effect they yeah. did or... Well, I know some of it they... had to have been digital for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But like, that'd be a wild thought. Like, here, paint part of this painting, yeah. part of this painting and kind of mesh them together. I would buy that transition <laughs> picture. I want the picture right in the middle. That is starry the... nights <laughs> melting into... A charcoal drawing of Vincent in a casket. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, too. Yeah, because it's not all painting. Some of it's sketch. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of black and white stuff where you can tell it's like pencil mm-hmm. drawn, which is really cool, too. And because of the lines in the pencil, you get this much more chaotic, like, vibration in the picture. Yeah, I maybe, love it. Maybe in my, not top 10, probably, but top 20 favorite movies. Mm-hmm. It's a really good one. Well, what I like about it the most is it, like, inspires you to think outside of the box. And that's where you and I kind of hit a middle ground in the topics that we wanted to bring in today. Um, this takes the concept of film and the concept of paint and blends them together fucking beautifully in a way where it's like, if I tried to explain that this is the movie I wanted to make to Kristen, she'd shoot me. <laughs> I can't paint, so you'd be making that whole like, movie by yourself. I want to hire a team of 125 painters to paint our film instead of just busting out the camera and hiring a guy that looks like Van Gogh. <laughs> I think it's but, more interesting because it's his paintings, though, because I'm sure there are movies about Van Gogh that have actors that play him, mm-hmm. and I think it's almost more interesting to watch a movie about a man who's known for his work depicted by his work. Yeah. I think it's the only way you could do it. I agree with the director in that sense. Um, but, like, what do you take... What, do you get any inspiration out of it as far as, like, unconventional ways to look at a medium? Like, my world got shook when I took my flash fiction course. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, I've got a paragraph to tell a cohesive story. I have five sentences to wow the audience. I don't think that movie... It made my writing overall more powerful but it forced me to think about it in an entirely different way. I don't think that movie in particular does, I guess, because it's such a specific idea. Like, I am not a painter. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to paint movies, and I would have to hire a whole host of people that I can't afford to hire, so I don't think that movie in particular necessarily makes me go, ooh, I could do something like that, <laughs> you know? But um, I, I think it is nice to, like... Especially with, I think, the way movies are now. Like, it's like we just keep remaking the same shit over and over and over again. It is Mm -hmm. nice to, like, have stuff that kind of pushes boundaries. So then if you're, like, working on something of your own that's kind of, like, a little, like, mediocre cliche or whatever, you can kind of take time to assess that and be like, how can I make this better? Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I was watching a video on YouTube earlier. Um about horror, actually, I watched two of them, like, about horror movies in particular, because that's uh, what Brett and I typically tend to make, because <laughs> Brett writes horror movies, and I don't write at all. <laughs> um, where they were talking about, uh, uh, one of them was, um, Fate's Worse Than Death. I was like, yeah. what's, what's the topic? I thought you were trying to come up with the <laughs> film name, and I was like, there were ten films. <laughs> no. Uh, the general theme, Fate's Worse Than Death, and then also, um, I watched one talking about, uh, like, the rare occasions where people in scary movies make good decisions, and, mm-hmm. um, how rarely that happens, so yeah. it is kind of an interesting thought, like, how, I feel like there's expectations, and I don't know if that you would agree or not, in a lot of horror movies where people kind of do have these tropes they follow and then that's just kind of what a horror movie is kind of like rom-coms turns into a video game again yeah Mm -hmm. like kind of like rom-coms like rom-coms always have the couple that meets and then they butt heads and then there's all this tension and eventually they fall in love and they meet she's perfect he's an asshole redemption story kiss at the end fun music yeah there's like a formula for it and i feel like 
maybe I'm wrong, maybe I haven't watched enough of them, but a lot of horror films are kind of the same way. Like, there's yeah. a formula for a successful horror film, mm-hmm. and a lot of people follow that formula. You know, it's a money grab. Uh, d- d- yeah. It's the reason why the slasher films are more or less dead, because nobody can reimagine beyond the canonical, you know, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and Jason Voorhees. It's hard to think outside of that realm. Uh, The torture porn is dead. Saw did it. You're not going to be better than Saw. Paranormal Activity did it for paranormal films. The first one and the rest of them suck. The Exorcist did it for possession. You know, so like, if you want the formula, you follow these very, very, very successful films. And in the process, you create dog shit because you're just following a formula from a writer's perspective. (coughs) You should borrow elements. But yeah, once they once the is it the Wan brothers or is it just James Wan? I think it's just James Wan. Once he, you know, put that cuff on the guy's ankle in the bathroom and said, I'm gonna make this whole movie for like less than a million dollars and it's gonna blow the fucking world apart. You're not gonna touch that. We've seen it time and time again in our two stars when torture porn films come up. You know, it's like, oh, what's he going to do? Is he going to go after his eye? Every time they go after the eyes. (laughs) Which will, because I think that's an interesting premise. We'll talk about the fate worse than death later. But Mm -hmm. um, like the one that I watched, which I know I didn't send that to you, so you can't really have the same context. But the one that I watched that was talking about how rare it is that characters in horror films make good decisions Mm -hmm. is kind of comical to me. And one of the ones they (laughs) listed was um, uh, Evil Dead, where Ash puts the chainsaw arm on, because they were like, the premise is ridiculous, he gets bit, his hand's possessed. (laughs) His hand's possessed, so he has to cut his own hand off, but then he's left with the dilemma, he's down one hand, Mm -hmm. and there's a perfectly good chainsaw there. (laughs) Um, And how that was a good decision to attach the chainsaw arm, um, which they had like 10 other movies listed but that one just cracked me up because i was like that's yeah it's so ridiculous but also yeah i mean facts like arm yourself solid <laughs> literally <choice. laughs> um but yeah i i feel like that is so cliche and i was telling you before we turned the podcast on um i did a fiction writing class as well and um i was uh double minoring at the time and uh majoring in film so I would have to dedicate a huge chunk of my free time that I had and also working full time (laughs) I'd have to dedicate a huge chunk of my free time that I had to shooting my films because those were um based around everybody else's availability that was working on my film with me so it was a lot harder to squeeze in time to write decent stories for my Mm -hmm. double minor um so one of the stories that I turned in was like a very stereotypical like ghost story where yeah you have the opening sequence where the couple's fucking in the haunted house. One of them dies, one of them gets away, and then other person hears about the story, is compelled to go investigate the house. You have the hesitant friend, <laughs> the, the original person disappears, mm-hmm. and then they find the mysterious item that leads them to go into the house to hunt for the other trope, person. Trope, trope, trope. Yeah, <laughs> and then at the tail end, you have the, the ghost behind you, and it's like, oh, snap, yeah. you're going to die, and then that's the end of the story. Um, so yeah, mine was like as cliche as it could get. And that was, uh, yeah, something they definitely poked fun at me for whenever we did our, uh, like you had to read each other's stories and they do like a group kind of assessment of the story. So workshop. Yeah. Yeah. 
So whenever it got my turn, they definitely made fun of me. Um, <laughs> but like, but that is an interesting concept and in like successful scary movies that are like on TV and like have good returns in the box office and stuff like that, that there are all these tropes and characters making absurd decisions you wouldn't make. Like there is a teenager out there who thinks they're invincible that would do it. But typically speaking, two teenagers aren't going to go fucking the ghost house, you know, like, like decisions people in real life don't make, but Mm -hmm. we accept them in movies. Well, it's what's so beautiful about Scream is Craven going, I see your patterns. I'm going to make one of your little pattern movies and break it. (laughs) But like, do you... It's like, oh, we have the pretty big tittied blonde. I'm going to kill her in the first five minutes. (laughs) Do you find yourself when you're writing, because you do write, Mm -hmm. um scary stories like do you find yourself trying to branch out but yeah do. <laughs> <laughs> do you find yourself um like thinking about that at all when you're writing are you like aware if you write something that's a little cliche or do you mm-hmm. do you have techniques to avoid that or is it even something you think about at all yeah it is something that i think about I, i'm more concerned with copying another artist's style than i am with the tropes because you can use tropes effectively i think there's this big issue because we've come to identify the tropes in our stories um like, it doesn't take anything away from the hero's journey, which is, like, the tropiest of tropes. You know? <laughs> you need the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, which is hilarious, yeah, because it is very tropey, but it is, for some reason, the accepted trope. Like, yeah. your story has to have an arc for your main character. Exactly. Like, I think it's important to look out for, for tropes um, if you're using them. In just abundance for- like I was. Do what? In abundance like I was? Well, you can use them abundantly, but they need to be used for a purpose. You can use the hero's journey, but it better be a good hero's journey, or else you're just rewriting the same shit that's been written for fucking hundreds of years. It's the pinnacle of human storytelling. Is There I was. I was nobody. And then I found my boxing rings, or I was Beowulf, or whatever. <laughs> but it's the same fucking tale. Um... But yeah, it's the the big issue that I have with my first novel, unreleased, um, <laughs> going through a name change and a rework, hopefully soon, um, is that it is very, like, 70s horror tropes, you know? Like, it's what I love about the genre, wrapped up into one and put in a house with, like, a 2005 plot twist. It's, it, it feels like it's been done before. In a lot of ways, at least to me, but I wrote it and I've read it a shitload of times and I'm trying to fix it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I did that. This line is definitely like hijacked from something I read, you know, when I was in high school. And, you know, this scene is something that I've probably seen in a movie or I wanted to see in a movie. And, oh, yeah, blood drips from the ceiling. That happens in fucking every other film, you know. Blood drips Andy from our Ville. whiteboard. <laughs> so. Like, I don't think about the tropes until I get to the editing phase, because the important part is to just get the story out. But when you read as much as I do and watch film as often as we do, you identify those things at a level that I don't think the audience would pick up, Mm -hmm. which is why, like, I've asked you recently to, like, read that first novel and be like, tell me flat out with a highlighter what fat I can cut out of this thing. Tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. 
Because I know the first five chapters are just literally a setup, a video game, to walk us into what I need him to do <laughs> for the rest of his life to be ruined. And then from there, it's it's not a bad book. It needs a lot of tightening. It needs a bit more explanation. But the scares are very tropey. I have a cat, you know. I think that I, I had a cat, too, in mind. Yeah. I had, a, I had a black cat that, like, takes off with the house key and fucking winds up dead. I jump scare. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a property line that he can't go outside of and a storm in the middle of the night. Like, every fucking basic trope you can think of. I've, I've, I wrote it in that book. I've got people coming back from the dead that turn out to be hallucinations. It's fucking bullshit. But, you know, it's bullshit to me because I wrote it and I read a lot. If that makes sense. No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> Don't roll your eyes at me. I saw that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I just, I mean, like, do you think it matters or do you, do you think they work for a reason or? Yeah, once you find a successful pattern, I mean, the first time it's going to knock it out of the park. The Exorcist is a mind-breaking film. So much so that every other film about possession feels like it's trying to be the crucifix that she shoves into her vagina. I like. I feel like cause we talked. Um, shoot, what movie was it? Semi recently about a movie that lays breadcrumb. Oh yeah, it was um, one of our two stars, um, Selfless, that lays like these breadcrumbs mm-hmm. that come back around later, and I, I feel like. I don't know, I would never try to rewrite the story that I wrote for my fiction class because it yes. was just a dog shit story. I was trying to crank out so I could get a grade. Um, <laughs> I've done a hundred of those. <laughs> but, like, I, I wonder if having, even if they're tropes, like, tropes that are meaningful to the actual story that come okay. back around, like... That's what I'm saying. If you're going to use them, use them with purpose. You know, yeah. it's the, the part that people forget about Stephen King's on writing where he's talking about adverbs or the pavement to hell or whatever his quote is there. But he also says later on in the chapter, later on in the book, um, use them if you can't find a better word. But if you can write anxiously, then you can show me anxious. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But yeah, like but I if have... anxiously is like the best word and it's the only thing that captures the beat and the flow of the story, use anxiously. Fuck but it. He's pacing. Had, <laughs> I had like a, in my little story that I turned in for class, like I had like a... Because I needed to get my main character inside of the house because I'd already done the whole thing where the initial couple had gone in there and one of them had died and the other one was like all traumatized. And then we have the secondary character that's like investigating. So she goes into the house because she's just curious. And then the main character um, like didn't have like a legit reason to go into the house. So like I literally just have her go there to kind of check it out. And then she like conveniently Mm -hmm. sees the bracelet that I... Passingly established, they had best friend bracelets. Not the bracelet. Yeah, that's just positioned conveniently in the bushes where she can see it, <laughs> and there's no um, like indication anywhere in my story like what happened to the other friend, mm-hmm. other than like as an audience, we're supposed to just accept she's dead. How the bracelet yeah. got there conveniently outside of the house, <laughs> even though the inside of the house is what's haunted. Like there was no setup, and it's like I wonder if. When um, people are writing stories or filming mm-hmm. movies or whatever that have these tropes, if there's something that you can't justify why it's there at all, if you like acknowledge that and either 
make a justification for it or cut it entirely. Yeah, well, that's that's the whole drafting and editing process is I don't need this. It's why I'm upset with my first five chapters. I need to establish that this guy is jogging so that he can find a house while his wife is looking for a house so that he can go into the house and meet the guy who currently owns the house. The first five chapters are just like a jogging dictionary. I feel better. I'm I'm a sober writer. I recently had the New York Times, but it it's all the bullshit. <laughs> I had to take up jogging. And then one day I took a path I didn't take again, you know. I have a I'm not we... a jogger. I just read this article about <laughs> African fucking spear hunters and how they would have to run for twenty five miles and have delusions and I just needed to include that. So I wrote like two chapters around this weird fact about <laughs> African tribe hunters. That has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. <laughs> it's dog shit. It's one of the... It's Forrest Gump. You should just have... <laughs> there I was. I was running into, into hell. <laughs> Endlessly jogs for the entire movie. He should jog right off the last page. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right yep. foot. That demon, should be demon, every, demon. Chapter. every chapter. Every <laughs> chapter. <laughs> um, okay, so the, the other topic. Because uh, you write... Again, scary stuff. Do you think, because the article or the the video that I sent you was like talking mm-hmm. about fate's worse than death. Do you think... It was interesting. I really want to watch Tusk. That was a crazy yeah, goddamn that was get weird. up. <laughs> um, do you think that... Because I, I don't think very many people die in your stuff. Like, I feel like in the Madman Diaries, it's not really... I don't know if anybody really like main character wise dies at all in that book like you have people that are dead in that book but i don't know that anyone dies it's more just about like trauma yeah and Mm -hmm. like the experience of it and stuff so do you find in your own work whenever you're writing stuff that that isn't to you what's scary either because like yeah like i think i've said it before on the show but the scariest part of seven for me is when they go into the weird BDSM store Mm -hmm. and they're shown the Polaroid of the strap on with the razor at the end of it, that the man was forced at gunpoint to fuck the hooker to death with. You don't see dead hooker. You see shaken up guy who killed the hooker explaining. And then they show you this like 10 inch goddamn strap on with a big ass razor on the end of it. And that Polaroid is the scariest part of seven. It's all playing in your head. I really, I don't remember that scene at all. I don't remember that scene. I remember being freaked out by a gluttony dude just because. Mm-hmm. Forced imagery. him to eat and then kicked him in the stomach and yeah. ruptured his guts. Yeah, yeah the imagery. Because he's there with like maggots and shit mm-hmm. all over everything. His like, face yeah. down in his bowl. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so gross. Um, but yeah, like I don't, I don't feel like, which I haven't read the. A novel that you haven't published yet, but I don't feel like in a lot of your stories people actually die presently. Like you do mm-hmm. reference people that are already dead once the story kicks off. Yeah. Um, but you you don't like necessarily the, the dolls focus is, on the death. Yeah, the dolls, the story is not the dolls that is in the film. That's a screenplay based on the story, and it's a lot more visually showing the trauma. The story itself is more from Allison's adult perspective. Mm-hmm. The conversation that she would have had with a therapist. So it, like, removes you from the initial violence. Like, even Pinewood, I guess technically in Pinewood, um, 
some of the people die in the story, but it's more about... No, they're dead too, before the story. No, the film crew that goes in. Oh, yeah. Like some of those people die during the story, mm -hmm. but a lot of that was just like... Out of the corner of the eye or... Yeah, like the was, experience yeah. of it. Like you could just hear someone in the background. It was like, oh, shit, he's dead. I better keep running. You know, it wasn't about the death. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, like what do you feel like whenever you're writing your stuff influences for you what's scary for you and what you think will be scary for the audience? Um, can you grab me another beer? No. No? Okay. <laughs> um, I guess what's scary for me, I've, I've been through what multiple therapists have called multiple traumatic instances in, <laughs> in my life. And I've spent a lot more time. I mean, there's a, I think it might even be the blurb on the back of the book where it's like the, the actual fear lasts a moment and the memory lasts a lifetime. You know, like I've been through things where a split second decision has morphed my fucking brain. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to deep dive into them, but I've seen, yeah, some shit. So, <laughs> um, everything was normal. This thing happened. Nothing else will ever be normal again. You know, like my reaction to certain things as of late, more reflectively, you know, like my father's death, this idea where I can almost see myself in a third person carrying his body out of his bedroom to put it onto the gurney. I've thought more about that when in reality that was maybe a five to ten minute thing. Put him on the gurney, roll him out, put him in the car, he's gone. But to me, that's, you know, five years removed almost. And that moment lasted a lifetime. So what's scary to me is in the echoes of the immediate horror. If you see a person get hit by a car and like their body comes in half or some shit like that, there's a you before that and a you after that. And the least scary part is the person getting hit by the car. It's your reaction to being hit by the car. It's your Polaroid, the strap on with the razor. <laughs> Do you think that, um, the fact that, because your, your dad was sick for a while, like he didn't. Yeah, like two years. Yeah, before he did yeah, He got a liver transplant and a, banged his head off the fucking toilet and almost died a bunch of times in that two years, but yeah. He, but do you think that the fact that that's how it happened, like, has any effect on the way that you see, like, trauma and scary stuff and what's dark and terrifying in general to people? Because, like, I feel like there's a difference in... If your dad had, you know, been at war and got shot and just never come home and it's yeah. an instantaneous thing versus he... Watching him die. Yeah, yeah, he was dying for a long period of time. So, like, again, like, even that association with death being the most scary thing that can happen to you, it's the slow, like, arrival mm -hmm. to death that, it, like, I feel like ends up being more terrifying. The bastard of it is uh, Polinick already took my story with Knock Knock. Because <laughs> everything that I wanted to say is that story. It's my favorite short story, and I think for that very reason. I'm screaming, knock, knock. No matter what I do, the old man's not laughing. Because I, I think that's an interesting thing about you. Like, you didn't write the Madman Diaries until after um, mm -hmm. your father was gone. And I feel like for most people losing... I wrote the first and second book. He never read those two. 
I'd before. written those before he passed away. Oh. I wrote those while he was in the hospital. Yeah. The, like the Mad Men Diaries came after, right? And, yeah. Um, it was my short story collection of my, my weekly updates <laughs> on the website. The best ones on there. And I, I feel like for most people, when you experience death that closely, like I've known tons of people who've died. I've been to tons of funerals and stuff, mm-hmm. but I've never had like a sibling die or one of my parents die. It's been like yeah. grandparents or friends from school or aunts or uncles or whatever that, you know, so it feels like a little bit more removed. And when you have someone in your immediate circle die, I feel like most people's reaction is to be afraid of death. Like there's this like sense of doom of like, I'm going to die and everyone I know and love is going to die where I feel like with your writing, the stuff you reflect on is like more like the trauma and the sadness and the experience versus like, death isn't really the worst thing that can happen. Well, like I've seen it up close maybe five times, you know, like either a dead body or literally watching the last minute, uh, one of them being my father. And it's the least scary part. I mean, I've, I've seen some shit that like shook five or six people and my reaction was to go outside and pee. It's like, I'm going to go piss on that bush. And my reaction to the scary shit um, is the part that troubles me the most because it's a catatonic state that you're in after something really fucking crazy goes down. And it's like you're not in your own body anymore, you know? Like you gave that up and then it comes back to you and you have to realize that that was a fear response one way or the other. Do you feel like... I sat in the garage with my brother and called people and laughed and got pissed drunk on bad wine and then drove home and <laughs> on the day Dad died. And by the end of the phone calls, we didn't know the people and we were hammered. So we were like, hey, Dad's dead. All right, I'll see you later. <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. But it was a beautiful bonding experience with my brother. It's something I'll never fucking forget. But I wasn't in my body that day, I don't think. At least not the me that's here now. So, like, the way that it changes you is the scary part. Do you think any of that stuff affected your writing? Or do you think your writing has always been kind of like that reflective? No, it it got reflective after I lost Dad. It got reflective after I left the Air Force. And then, again, ten times more after I lost Dad. Um... I think I tried too hard with the anger and the violence. Like I had this concept in high school with my buddy that I, you know, remains nameless on the podcast because I would implicate him in crimes if I ever gave his name. But we had a um, little attempt at a nightmare box, you know, back then. It was called The Suicide Nation. And today, and I wish I had my phone on me, but I don't... um, in the memories was like a post from like 10 years ago. It was this poem that I'd written for Suicide Nation. And we went to Atlanta, I thought, to give a speech. (laughs) I got sold on this idea that we were going to go talk to high schoolers about um, staying alive through hard shit. And when I got there, I found out that my buddy just wanted to like hook up with this chick from Atlanta. So we just kind of drank in their 
hyper-Christian living room. Did he tell you that's what you were doing, or did he just kind of leave vague hints about where you he were goes, going? He no, we're going to this conference out there. They've We've been put on the thing. I know the chick that's running the show. There was no conference. He just knew a chick with a fucking <laughs> hyper-Christian so household. you. <laughs> yeah, and we had a backpack. We had a backpack, and in the backpack was a change of shirt, a change of underwear, no change of socks, and two bottles of Jack Daniels. <laughs> we drove all the way out to Atlanta from Nashville. It's like a four-hour fucking trip or whatever. To hang out with this hyper Christian family, and the dad locked the, all the daughters in their rooms overnight because he didn't trust the two shifty teenage I drunks. Can't believe they let you stay the yeah, night. Yeah, no, we crashed in the living room. It I was the been wildest like, get out of my house. Because yeah. <laughs> you guys were teenagers too, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd never met the family before that. Like I would have definitely no. been like, "What are you doing? Get out of my house!" No, my dude knew them. <laughs> my That's, dude, not my dad. My dude. My dude. <laughs> Yeah, if I was the dad, though, I would have been like, get the fuck out of my house. No, he was very warm. She told them that we were coming over for a Christian conference. Oh. <laughs> Apparently well. there was a whole situation. My boy was supposed to be slipping one to a, you know, <laughs> a chick in Atlanta. <laughs> so random. Yeah. That's way more effort than I've ever put into dating yeah. someone. No, we basically <laughs> got locked into the living room and Cooper, uh, bleep, bleep that. <laughs> can't be dropping names <clears throat> he who shall remain he shall nameless. remain nameless uh busted out like a couple bottles of whiskey we just got fucking torched in this christian family's household looking at the serenity prayer over the fireplace <laughs> <laughs> wandering outside for cigarettes and they're like you're not old enough to smoke and it's like i'm hammered leave me alone <laughs> that on your resume that you <laughs> held a held a conference <laughs> well i thought we were I, I thought we were going out for good causes i thought we were going out there to like hold a convention or that there was a convention and we were being allowed to read our bullshit poems that's what i was told i'd be able to talk to like 15 16 year old kids who were like going through a juvenile were you also 15 or 16 how old were you i think i was 17 at the time so a little bit older yeah and so my idea was we're going to go to this conference and, like, talk to high school kids about why you shouldn't kill yourself. I thought our poetry had reached next level. Turns out my boy just wanted his, to get some pussy. His dick had <laughs> reached next level. <laughs> but I wasn't mad when I found out there was no conference because there was whiskey. And if you're going to pacify me, let's just get hammered and write poems. <laughs> you know me. Yeah. But, it, yeah, I... I don't know why I went off on a tangent about Suicide Nation, but that, yeah. That was your first uh, nightmare box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any cool stories like that. <laughs> <laughs> My parents were not paying attention to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my mom would have let me just spontaneously. I went to Atlanta for work yeah. uh, when I was like in my 20s and my mom was mad mm-hmm. about that. She would not have let me spontaneously as a teenager drive out to Atlanta. Yeah, no, I was like 16. We were getting hotels in Nashville and fucking... How did you even afford that? On a couch in the ghetto. Do what? I said, how did you even afford that? Because it was a Holiday Inn in Antioch. Yeah. Like when it was I was like six... $100 for the weekend and we'd just get 16. fucking blitzkrieg. When I was 16, I was basically making just enough to pay the car payment. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. I didn't have a car payment. My grandpa had passed away and I bought cash. <laughs> it's a theme of my life. I buy cash. <laughs> and then you have problem child cars. Exactly. I <laughs> got hotel money for partying when I'm a child. Doing irresponsible things in really bad parts of town. So 
what I'm hearing from this story is that I'm going to make our children have car payments because that's the only way to keep you in line. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing from <laughs> so this story. So if you've got a car payment, your gas station money isn't going to go to You can't afford to have fun. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be sleeping in the backseat of the Mustang in the gas station parking lot and fucking sleeping on an air mattress in a goddamn meth dealer's fucking <laughs> apartment. Yep, so that's the moral of the story. Yeah. Car payments. Good way to <laughs> keep go. you in line. You ready to get some wings? Yes. You ready to get some rings? I'm starving. If you guys have stuck around for this long, uh, the film we are going to be watching next is Fargo. It's what Kristen is fighting the name, but the no. Tectonic Tuesday. No, I'm not naming it up. <laughs> I wanted to call it Must Watch Monday, but I don't want to go through the trouble of dropping it on Monday instead of Tuesday, so. I'm going to call it Must Watch Monday on Tuesday. <laughs> like Bill Burr's like Monday, Monday podcast morning. on. Monday morning podcast. Yeah, but isn't it like on some other day? Yeah. It's called like Monday morning. I think on it's like your Thursday afternoon. Monday morning podcast. See, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call it Must Watch Monday on Tuesday. <laughs> I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Whatever the fuck it's called, it's going to be about Fargo from what I believe is 1996. It's a Coen Brothers film. I've seen it once. Kristen's seen it never. I've oh, seen, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen oh, a couple yeah. of key scenes because you always show me those. So. <laughs> I know about the bloody snow and yeah. that. The wood chipper and the fucking the hooker. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, sweetheart. Ready for Wings and Rings yeah. and Fargo? Yeah. I love you. Love you. And I love you guys. And we will see you on Monday or Tuesday, depending on... Nope. I'm definitely not recording tomorrow. I don't know. We'll Saturday or Sunday. We could record on Tuesday. I could drop this one on Monday. It's time warp. Yeah. <sighs> That's super sexy.